0: Welcome to the Mom Manual. Motherhood doesn't come with instructions, but it should. We are on a mission to highlight ordinary moms doing extraordinary things to build the ultimate mom manual. Every week, I have the distinct honor of speaking with women about the lessons they've learned and the inspiration that got them to where they are today. Join us for a conversation that will spark creativity, provide actionable tips, and celebrate the ordinary and extraordinary moments of motherhood. The Mom Manual starts now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mom Manual Podcast. Tara Williams here with a very special guest. We have Carrie from Solid Starts. She's a mom of two and a pediatric occupational therapist with 18 years of experience helping infants and children learn to eat. Carrie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Tara. It's nice to be here. We are excited to have you here helping children and infants learn to eat that is a big responsibility can you tell our listeners a little bit how you got into pediatric ot and you know some of the some of the things over the
1: last 18 years maybe that have changed in the industry or that you're particularly passionate about Yeah, absolutely. So I sort of stumbled into pediatric occupational therapy um, by accident when I was in college because I did not know what I wanted to do. And I liked physical therapy and kinesiology and communications and psychology and ended up meeting an OT who sort of pulled me into the field. And it was the best move I ever made. I absolutely love my job. I'm very passionate about my work. And um, also feel pretty lucky that early on in my career, I met another OT who was a specialist in the area of feeding, eating and swallowing. And it sort of opened my eyes to that area of practice. And immediately I was like, yeah, that's my niche. That's what I want to do. So I started specializing early, which is why I've been doing this work specifically in this area for a long time and um, just quickly started building a clientele in within the clinic that I worked at. I really focused on that area and ended up getting extra certifications in the area of eating, eating, and swallowing through the state of California, where I was initially practicing and then eventually nationally and moved on from there to a large children's hospital and ended up working in the NICU for several years, almost 10 years spent working with really little bitty infants wow. who had difficulty learning to eat. And while I was there, I became an IBCLC as well. So I got my my lactation consultant certification and really just started niching down to infants and toddlers and how they learn to eat both um, bottle feeding, breastfeeding, transitioning to solids. And then that early phase of toddler picky eating that sort of leads you into normal, more more normalized eating as you get out of those toddler years. So uh, that became my passion and my specialty. I started teaching on the topic about a decade ago and started teaching therapists kind of what I do. And then in the meantime, also realized, wow, there are a lot of parents out there who want this information and need to know this information. And I became a parent myself 10 years ago and realized that I had a lot of friends who had all of the same questions that I had, probably the same similar questions that you and your listeners have. And realized that I loved sharing information on this topic. And I also started seeing clients in home. So, I mean, at this point now, I've worked with thousands of children as they've transitioned to solids, children with special needs and disabilities, as well as children who are typically developing. So I have a very wide breadth of knowledge around what this looks like for different kids. And I really love sharing that. And Solid Starts is the perfect platform for that. I love how you've done everything from NICU to in-home. And,
0: but really you are so specialized. We think about pediatric occupational therapists like we work pretty closely with them because we have a way to blanket but I did not realize it, you could be so specialized into something like feeding eating and swallowing so you address this a little bit but you said um children with special needs and typically developing children so is is it really for both because I I think a typically developing child why do they really
1: need to learn to eat they just eat right yeah I love that question so my beginning of my career was spent entirely working with children who had differences of some sort, medical needs, who had developmental delays, um, who had a wide breadth of interesting and different issues. Working at Children's Hospital, some of them were extremely complex, and then others were not quite as complex. So that was obviously a group where there's going to be issues with feeding and eating and swallowing, especially when you're looking at infants and then toddlers as well. That sort of seemed obvious. When I became a parent, it became very apparent to me that... A lot of children struggle with feeding, eating, and swallowing. And the literature, as I dug into it, actually supports that. Like there's a really broad range of children with no medical diagnoses, no developmental delay, who still struggle in some way with eating. And that's on a spectrum, right? So you have children who have a little bit of difficulty with breastfeeding or a little bit of difficulty taking bottles, a little bit of difficulty transitioning to solids, all the way through extreme difficulty and extreme picky eaters, even in kids that don't seem to have any. Any other issue that you would be able to diagnose or address. So it, that sort of shifted something with me, like I said, close to a decade ago where I realized, oh, there's a much broader audience here of people who need support with this. And again, it's on that spectrum. So there's parents who have a child who's typically developing, who's eating fairly well, but they still are like, Nobody's giving clear information on how I'm supposed to do this, on what the steps are and what comes next and, you know, whether or not my child is on track the way they should be on track. So that group needs support often as well as as you progress along that spectrum towards um, families where they're like, yeah, I have a, a child who's following a very different path and I need very clear recommendations here.
0: Right. I'm the founder of Dreamline baby. So we have sleep things. And so we work really closely with sleep consultants and they always compare sleep to feeding. And they say, mm-hmm. you know, when you think about sleep, a lot of parents think you just put the baby down and it's a natural thing. And they would know how to sleep and how to get themselves to sleep, to stay a week, sleep, and then settle in the night but they compared a lot to that first and and if you're a mom listening or a dad you know that first solid feeding right where they they're like they're like pushing it out of their mouth they don't know what to do with it so i hear that comparison a lot but i thought past that first feeding most kids then are like okay i've i've learned how to take the solids or even if it's mush and then but then what happens next like there's still some typically developing children that then don't ever learn
1: or need to go
0: see an OT or what does that look
1: like? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's a perfect comparison. You think that it's going to be very natural. And for many children, it is, you know, you, you, if you just step back and you get out of their way, it is very natural. They progress beautifully. But I think as parents, we second guess ourselves. Sometimes we get in the way and we sort of hold back our babies from being able to progress as they could potentially progress. And some babies just struggle a little bit more than others with figuring out what really is a complex set of skills. Feeding and transitioning to solids is not just one movement pattern. It's a variety of movement patterns that are layered on top of each other. So your baby is having to figure out those different movement patterns through trial and error. And it's really common actually for parents to say, gosh, my baby's just not quite figuring it out the way we would expect them to figure it out. Um, And I often say, you know, this is not, those are not kids that need therapy. You know, they they don't actually need somebody to come in and do a lot of oral motor work or, you know, diagnoses. These are just kids that need a little bit of support, but there's actually not a lot of people who give that type of support, which is why I felt so compelled to sort of branch into that area to be like, hey, this is very normal. And absolutely your baby, there's nothing wrong with them. They're going to get there. But if you just do these three things, I think actually they'll get there a little bit more successfully a little sooner than if we, you know, don't give them this little bit of support. I don't like to over kids. I am often telling parents, this is normal, this is fine. This is not a big deal. Um, but still that doesn't mean that we shouldn't give, you know, just a little bit of support if you know what, what to do.
0: No, I love that. And as a first time mom, I think anytime you see your child not developing in a manner that you think they should, or you feel like the internet is telling you or social media, for me, at least my mind immediately would go to, do they have a developmental delay? Do they have autism? Do they have something that is undiagnosed that I'm not sure of? And to be able to have a resource like yourself that could say, Nope, you just need to do these few little things. And then here's when it becomes you know, you might want to see somebody further. It's just as parents, I feel like we're so on edge about everything all the time. Second guessing, are we making the right decision? So I think it's amazing, Carrie, what you're doing. This is a really great segue actually into your first
1: takeaway. Do you want to share that with everyone? Yeah. So thank you so much. Yeah, that was why Solid Starts was born, in part because our founder, Jenny, was struggling so much with feeding her son, who, again, just typically a developing child who was really struggling with picky eating. And um, as we've built this up, it's been really important for us to reassure parents and to put this information out there so parents do have that sense of instead of feeling completely overwhelmed and scared that their child is struggling that they have resources that show them you know this is normal you know, they, they need practice take time keep working on this they'll get there um or that you know, actually that does fall outside the realm of of what's typical let's address this yeah. so yeah solid starts is is here for that especially to give parents that support and feel like oh, they know where they can look for valuable, real information. So Solid Starts is an organization and our mission is basically to help you introduce real foods to your baby. We want to prevent picky eating in kids and we really are trying to change the way infants and children are fed. So our organization is designed around the parent perspective, but we have a team of experts in this field. So everything we do is in some way evidence-based. If possible, we look at the research studies. And when the research does not exist, we pull on decades of clinical experience to bring evidence-based recommendations to families on this topic. And we have a wide variety of tools to help families. So we have an app, we have courses, we have guides, we have a, so much free content on our website, including a free first foods database that is filled with All of the foods that you would think about introducing to baby, we are growing it daily, adding foods weekly um, so that it will eventually have all foods. But we have a lot of tools for parents to help them achieve that mission of feeding baby real food, preventing picky eating and and really bringing more joy back to mealtimes. And do you guys
0: have any products or is it just education based?
1: We don't sell products like, you know, high chairs or bibs or things like that. The products are guides and courses and the app app is free. We have a very strong mission to bring this information to people who most need it. So we offer a lot of free content. um, But if you want to track your specific child, you can do a paid version of the app. We do have products like that.
0: Cool. That's awesome. Okay. First takeaway. Let's do it.
1: Yeah so the first takeaway is offer real foods to baby from the start. So I love talking about this topic. I think this is a big shift in how we feed babies. A lot of people assume we have to follow what was, you know, sort of the traditional approach to starting solids and it's only really been that way for about the past, like, you know, 80 to 90 years, but the traditional method starts with spoon feeding. So we scoop up a puree, usually, it's a rice right cereal or some type of cereal. It might be a fruit or a vegetable puree, and then we spoon feed it to baby, and they react exactly like you described, Tara. They, they the spit out. It out. <laughs> yeah, the tongue comes forward, they gag, they look uncomfortable, and eventually they figure that out. But at least a decade ago, the industry sort of flipped on its head a little bit with this idea that when When you're actually starting solids around six months, your baby has the skills to start with real foods. They don't need to start with purees. And the idea that babies should start with purees actually came from the past decade of marketing because we were starting solids with infants much younger. So when you are starting solids with a two-month-old or a three-month-old, and in some cases as young as like a three-week-old, a very, very young baby, You are going to need to offer them something that's like a liquid because liquids are all that can be processed at that age. Right. When you start solids with a six month old, which is predominantly the recommendation now it's sometime after four months, usually like the AAP recommends around six months when your baby is showing all the signs of readiness, they're ready to transition to solids. And at that age, they actually have the foundational skills as well as oral reflexes that will start to fade out soon enough, but that are still present that help them learn to chew as well as protect them against choking. So they're ready for real foods. So our whole premise is the idea that if you start your baby on real foods from the start, they learn some really valuable things that are just foundational to their eating. The first is they learn to chew. And that's the most important thing that your baby does when they transition to solids. They are not learning to just drink more food. They're, they need to learn to chew real food so that they can eventually join the family meal. So practicing chewing at six months gives them a long phase of being able to practice those complex skills of chewing and moving food around the mouth from six months to at least 12 months and beyond when they have a very robust safety net of breast milk or formula. So they don't actually need to take in much. They just need to practice those skills. So I have a question on that. I thought it was like three months. Is that, is that something, did that change recently or- Yeah. So the recommendations have shifted considerably over the past decade. And I know we were talking about this. You have uh, some children who are older as well. So you may um, heard different things. It's not uncommon for parents to be like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. And you're like, well, that's the change. Um, Or for grandparents to be like, that's not how you do it. And you're like, well, that's not how it was done. But right. Yeah. So yeah, the recommendations now are no earlier than four months. Oh, okay. No, around six months. So four months, some babies might be showing readiness signs. It is very, very rare that babies are showing all those signs at four months. And then the AAP qualifies with around six months is most ideal. So usually you can start looking for those signs around four months. You won't see them until closer to six months. Today's episode was brought to you by Dreamland Baby.
0: I want to introduce you to a product that hundreds of thousands of parents use to help their baby sleep the Dreamland Baby Weighted Sleep Sack. Hi, I'm Tara Williams, host of the Mom Manual and founder of Dreamland Baby. When my son Luke was six months old, he was still waking up every hour and a half. I was completely exhausted, frustrated, and at my wits end. Sound familiar? My solution to create a gently weighted sleep sack that babies can safely wear to help them feel calm, fall asleep faster, and stay asleep longer. The award-winning doctor-approved dream weighted sleep sack and swaddle features our proprietary cover calm technology, evenly distributed weight from your baby's shoulders to toes to help naturally reduce stress and allow your little one to feel relaxed and sleep soundly. If you're struggling to get your baby to sleep for longer stretches and go down easier, you're not alone. This product was a game changer for my son and can be for your family too. And right now we've got a special discount exclusive to mom manual listeners. Use code mom manual 15 at checkout to get 15% off site-wide. Isn't it time for you to invest in rest? And I think that it's like you learn whatever you're going to learn. You research for your first child and then typically you just kind of follow through for the others, right? Absolutely, so- yeah. You're not like re looking at, well, what did the AP say this month? Right. Like, <laughs> what do you do now, I mean, one of the jokes we hear all the time is how did our children ever survive? Because yeah. it, there's just, there's different things that come out. And so, one of my friends, I remember her saying her mom did it for her, and she would put a little bit of rice cereal into her baby's bottle when yeah. they were like newborn, like just first born and the idea was that their tummy would be more full so they would sleep a little bit longer those durations is that a wives tale or is that a real thing is that
1: recommended <laughs> that is a wives tale and it's oh, okay. but it's also i mean it's a real thing that a lot of people do and it's a very common grammar recommendation it's such a common like older generation thing to do. Um, the research now is showing, cause it's, it's common enough that it's, it's actually been looked at. Um, that's not the most ideal thing to do. There's a few different reasons why that is, but essentially babies shouldn't be taking food through their bottle. They should be taking their formula that you don't want to displace nutrients from the formula. And also the, the rice cereal introduced that early can lead to some some difficulties in the gut. So you, that's not the most ideal thing to do. I love that you said though, like how did any of us survive? How did our babies survive? Whenever parents hear things like this, I feel like nowadays it like immediately is a gut punch. If you've done that, you know, you're like, no, I've ruined my baby. I put cereal in the bottle. The reality is we are so resilient all of us are so resilient. It's going to be fine. But if you're starting out and you're like, should I do that? Or should I not do that? The reality is the research shows it doesn't actually help babies sleep better. And it's, it's not the most ideal thing for them. So it's probably best to avoid that. Got it. Okay. Around six months. And again, some babies as early as four months start to show the foundational readiness signs for solids. And those signs are head and neck and trunk control for sitting. That's really important because when the trunk has good control and it can keep an infant's body upright, both um, at the table, but even like just playing, If you give some support to their hips and they can keep their trunk upright and their head upright for the duration of a meal, so around five to 10 minutes is plenty right at first, that shows you that they have enough core stability to support the fine motor muscles in the mouth and throat that are needed for chewing and swallowing foods that also supports the arms and hands. So we think of fine motor movements in the hands or in the fingers oftentimes, which is right, that's correct, there's fine motor movements in the mouth and the throat as well, but your trunk and your strong core muscles support fine motor movements in your hands. So an infant should not only have stability in head, neck and trunk, but they need to have the mobility in their arms to reach out, grab a toy or grab food ideally pick it up and bring it to their own mouth. So if your baby can't bring food to their own mouth and you want to start solids, then yes, purees would be a more reasonable pathway. And so if you're starting as early as four months or even earlier than that, historically, you would need to go the puree route. But around six months, most babies have enough stability in their core and enough mobility in their arms to sit up with support, reach out, grab food and bring it to their mouth. And when that happens, then they have actually all the foundational reflexes to begin practicing chewing real food.
0: You know what I think about immediately? The bumbo seat. And it makes them sit up. And you're like, yeah. oh, sitting. So yeah. I'm the bumbo. To feed my baby at you know three months, I want to say yeah. there is no way they were sitting on their own at that time. So they really exactly. wouldn't have been ready. And then that pincer grasp is really pretty much what you need to be able to grab something. And when does that pincer grasp that doesn't start about six months, right?
1: You were just asking all the right questions. I love <laughs> it. So no, the pincer grasp actually doesn't come around until closer to nine months for most oh, babies. Oh. So, okay. This is why this um, idea of big pieces of food is so important when it comes to starting real foods with babies. So you hit the nail on the head. Most people think, okay, I'm going to start foods with my baby. If it's real foods, they're going to be diced little pieces of food that you're going to have to pick up with a little pincer grasp. The reality is you need baby to be able to pick it up with their whole hand. If you're starting around six months and the only thing that a baby can pick up at that age is something large because they're using a raking grasp. So they use their whole palm and their whole, all all of their fingers to pick up that food. So it needs to be bigger than their hand. So it sticks up above and below their hand when they pick it up, which completely baffles most people. They're like, like, and the baby chokes. Yeah, exactly. That's a very normal next thought. It's that is not correct, but yes, that's where everyone's mind goes. So around nine months, you can start introducing smaller pieces, but but around six months, the only thing that baby can pick up independently and bring to their mouth is a larger piece piece of food. So when baby brings that type of food to their mouth, you're right. You worry, wait a minute, my baby doesn't know what they're doing. And they've never done this before. Won't they choke? So now the next thing to remember is that babies at six months have a set of oral motor mechanisms that help reduce the risk of choking. And those oral mechanisms actually start to fade out as, as they hit, like eight months and beyond, those mechanisms are slowly starting to fade out, which is why we want to capitalize on introducing baby to these foods around six months. I can't tell you how many people say, why are we rushing babies? We shouldn't be rushing them. That's too early. The reality is your baby is going to lose those mechanisms somewhere in that first year. So we're not rushing them. We're just capitalizing on them when they're there. So your baby has first and foremost, a tongue protrusion pattern. People call it a tongue thrust that is there from early infancy that continues to be there around six months. And if it is the, the reflex has faded away, if the tongue thrust reflex is gone, which a lot of people, if you probably you've heard this, but people will say, don't start solids until the tongue thrust reflex is gone. You're I still- Oh, I
0: never heard of the tongue, tongue thrust okay. reflex at all.
1: That's fine. Um, that's a myth in my in my book. So the tongue thrust reflex is that forward backwards movement of the tongue pushing things back out of the mouth. And it's why when you feed your six month old, that first bite of purees, it just comes right back out because there is a reflex that causes baby's tongue to move in that that direction, that pattern. That reflex actually starts to fade somewhere between four and six months. But your baby has such a strong motor pattern that's left behind that even if the reflex isn't there, that's the way they want to move their tongue because it's like, this is what I've been doing for a while. So they have that motor pattern left behind, even if they don't have her reflex. So when food goes into the mouth, the baby has a minute where they can feel it, they can taste it, they may even move it a little bit, and then the tongue will push forward and get it back out of their mouth. So that tongue thrust reflex or the tongue protrusion pattern helps keep food very far forward inside baby's mouth. It actually makes it quite difficult for food to move backwards towards the throat, which is important because when a six month old doesn't really know how to break down food, we don't want them to move the food back quickly. We want that food to stay forward. So that's one, they have that, that tongue thrust pattern that's there that will keep food far forward. The second is that they have these very tightly packed together oral structures. So the tongue, the palate, the back of the throat, all of those things in an infant are, are tightly packed together. Even the cheeks, there's all this fat in the cheeks that help keep these spaces small in you and I, even in a toddler, you're starting to get much bigger spaces. They are growing and those spaces spread out. So now there's room in the back of the cheeks, in the side of the mouth for food to sort of roll around, move around, you know, get pocketed, get lost. Infants don't have those spaces. Again, it makes it extra challenging for a baby to move the food back, which is good because we don't want them to quickly move the food back. So that's two. The third, they have a very prominent, strong and anterior gag reflex. So when I say anterior, the gag reflex is triggered somewhere around the the middle of the tongue, even a little far forward in most babies, where we have our gag reflex is at the very back of the tongue and somewhere between nine to 15 months, that gag reflex is dampening. So it's getting less strong and it's moving back. So you want your baby exploring solids when the gag reflex is strong, powerful, and robust, because the gag reflex is a protective reflex. It keeps food well away from the throat and reduces the risk of choking. I've never heard this before. Oh, I love that. Great
0: is that, I mean, who would tell us that a pediatrician or like, where would anyone even learn that information? I
1: mean, this is why I, I was, I've been doing this work for a long time. And, and, um, why I joined up with solid starts to sort of amplify these messages. Cause I'm like, this is oral motor information that I have as a therapist that I'm like, once I became a mom, I was like, everybody should know this, this, you know, like why we all need this information and it's not widely available. And yes, some pediatricians know this stuff and some pediatricians may share this work, but the reality is most pediatricians are not trained on this topic. And even if they are most pediatricians, unfortunately don't have the time within their visits to share this level of information.
0: Oh, so interesting. And this is why we do the podcast. (laughs) We get more information out to everybody. Okay, so then what would an example be? I imagine a baby's holding like a chunk of a chicken breast. Like, and they have no teeth at this point, pretty much, right? So they're holding something in their palm. What would that be?
1: It can be a wide range of food. So a lot of people will be like, okay, what's the best food? And you're like, there are literally hundreds of best foods. Like there are so many different things you could do, but you're right. A chunk of chicken breast, like that sizing would be reasonable. Chicken is a little bit more challenging. So often we think of foods that are softer or foods that you can make soft. So for example, people immediately go to banana or avocado cut into spears or sort of like long strips. You can also do anything like, you know, zucchini or squash that has been cut into a larger spear or a strip and then roasted or steamed so that they are softened. Mm -hmm. Um, I love broccoli. It's a a big old floret of broccoli that has that big pop of the little tiny leaves or you know flowers on top, that roasted or steamed so that it's softened is a great option. Cauliflower is another great option. So many different fruits are either naturally soft enough when they're really ripe that you can give them a, a half of it or even kind of the whole thing with a little piece cut out of it so they can start on it. Or you can cook these foods until they're soft. So for example, an apple wouldn't be an appropriate thing. It's too firm and crumbly, but you could easily steam or boil an apple until it's softer and then give half to baby this is why we created our free first foods database. It is ah. packed with all of those foods. If you have the thought, huh, can I feed my baby a strawberry? Or hmm, I wonder if I can actually give a chicken breast. Like, would that be safe? You can go onto our first foods database. You can also download our app just called solid starts. And that is entirely free. And it lists all of these foods. You can look it up and it will give you the background of the food. It will tell you if it's choking hazard. It will tell you if it is a common allergen and it will show you and tell you how to prepare that food so that your baby can eat it at different ages. So can your baby eat this food at six months? There's there's really only a few that you can't eat at six months. And most of them can be modified so that your baby can eat it at six months. And if so, you want to know how do I need to modify this food so that my six month old can have it? So
0: yeah. Oh my gosh, that is such good information. You know, the other thing as you we were speaking through that when you said strawberries, I remember we would buy something that had um almost like a net, and you would put the food inside the net and then they just kind of gum on it. Do you recommend those or is that is that? kind of taking away from offering the real foods.
1: Yeah, no there's there's a couple of things to think about that. Number one, it that was a therapy tool that became mainstream. So I've seen that guy for a long time and we used to use it in therapy a lot. Um number two, you you kind of hit it. It's not necessary. Mm-hmm. It is one of those things that actually um you know isn't needed. Your baby has the oral motor reflexes to manage these foods and to get them back out of their mouth. And they are learning even more when they don't have the food contained in a net because food spreads. That's what it does. It's supposed to do that. And your baby needs to learn how to manage that and how to work with that. Yeah. But you're
0: stifling their progress in a way.
1: Yeah. But I will say kind of like what we were saying before, Tara, like if it makes your heart feel better and that feels good to you, it is a hundred percent fine to start with that. It's not going to harm your baby. And it actually may be a really positive experience for them because they won't gag right off the bat. So there are reasons why you might want to try that right at first and then quickly move away from that to allow them to actually explore real foods
0: yeah, okay, that I mean that's a good thing. I, I also feel like that's one of those things you get as a first time mom and then you're like, this is such a mess and there's no way to really clean these. and then I'm you know, that it it becomes not possible pretty quickly <laughs> yeah. to that. Awesome. Okay, do you want to bring us to our second takeaway?
1: Yeah. So the second takeaway is the idea that you should eat with your baby from the start. So we often picture our baby sort of in the high chair, everyone's gathered around with their cameras and we're filming them as they take their first bite. And, and then we tend to feed babies in that way, you know, and it's like, okay, I'm going to, put them down for a nap at this time. So I'll offer them some food in their high chair, you know, half an hour before then. And then when they're down for the nap, I'll eat my lunch, that type of mindset. But the reality is just like everything else we do infants learn the most when they see us do it. So when we sit down and we eat with baby, the modeling that is happening there is firing really richly in their brains to build and connect in really important neurons that help them learn how to do this again, complex skill of eating real foods and eventually joining the family meal. Babies are driven to imitate us and to do what we do. So we want to capitalize on that. So rather than your baby eats in the high chair at you know this hour, and then you shuffle them off to bed, and then you, you try and scramble in your meal, try when you can to prioritize eating with baby. So whatever you're pulling out for yourself for lunch, share with baby or whatever baby is having, if you don't have the capacity and as a, full-time working mom. I fully get this. I've been working since my babies were babies (laughs) since my kids were babies. So I get it. But if you have even a little bit of time and knowing that you have to feed yourself anyways, and your baby try to eat together and try whenever possible to share either the same or very similar foods. And this is where whole foods from baby from the start is so important because if you're eating, I mean, you could be having dinner and it's, you know, salmon and roasted zucchini and a, you know, side of rice, you don't have to give that all to baby, but you could easily give a spear of zucchini to your baby. That's been roasted as you're eating the other foods, or you might give a bunch of salmon to your baby as they're eating those foods. Again, you want to look to see how do I prepare this in a way that's safe for baby, but you just want to know that sharing those foods with baby from the start has value and it's important to do that whenever possible. So rather than the way we have sort of like kind of traditionally done it again, which is like, okay, I got to make something for baby and something for me, which actually to me, that's, that's more time consuming when you're preparing two different meals, multiple things, one meal for your family. And it again, doesn't have to be every meal right at first. It could just be breakfast or it could only be lunch or it could just be dinner because baby is learning. They don't need lots of opportunities at the table at first. And that can get overwhelming. You're going to build on that in time, but Set it up so that you are actually making it easier on yourself by sharing foods. And there's benefit to that.
0: Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. And I'm actually thinking about, I I have four kids and my oldest, we did a really good job of that. And it actually helped me eat healthier because then I'm not going to be eating. I'm not going to feed my six month old junk or processed food. Right. So it came back to these really, it was this like beautiful time for me and my husband Then we had our second and third within two years, two and a half years or all three of my kids. So it, we became overwhelmed, but (laughs) my first and second will eat anything. Like they will have salmon and they'll have, you know, all the non-kid stuff. And I really believe it's because that's, we fed them. And then by the time I had my third, it was more, he was eating squeezy packs, like the food that's in the squeeze, like on the go, or we were getting McDonald's at that. Like it just, it was overwhelming but he's now seven. He's super picky, like doesn't want to eat anything like chicken or like anything with texture. He's like, Oh, I don't like it. Like he pretty much just wants macaroni and cheese and like a handful of things. Do you feel like there's a correlation between, oh my gosh, now I feel like a bad mom, but but (laughs) there's a correlation though, which I mean, is there, is there any kind of evidence leaning toward that or?
1: yeah, so there is I, I do yeah, don't feel like a bad mom. That makes a thousand percent sense. the way you know that that's just the reality of parenting, the reality of life. but it, there is a strong correlation between the flavors that you are introduced to early and the foods that we choose to eat later. Those things tend to track based on the research. Yeah. He also, as a therapist, I have seen in my career, and this is not supported strongly by research, but this is just evidence based on my clinical experience of working with thousands of babies, that those early experiences of learning to chew and break down food are really important to influence what a toddler is willing to eat. And we know what toddlers are willing to eat tracks beyond that. So it's sort of like, you know, not that they have to chew perfectly in infancy, infancy to be a great chewer at five, like you can build those skills, but it's just harder to build those skills in toddlerhood with a toddler who is resistant, who didn't build those skills early, which again is when people ask me, why are we rushing babies? We don't want to rush them. My my answer is always, these skills are foundational. They're very important skills. It's not about rushing them, but it's giving them the chance to practice them over and over and over again before they hit toddlerhood, which we know is a very resistive, very inflexible, rigid phase. So it's more challenging to build those skills in toddlerhood. And then that will track, that tends to track beyond like to the five-year-old, the seven-year-old and, and beyond. Yeah. Will you bring
0: us to the third takeaway, which I think is a good segue from what I just said?
1: Yeah, no, I love talking about picky eating. So we can definitely talk about that another day, but um, the last one is to avoid pressure. So When we start solids, I think a lot of us imagine our baby just joining the meal quickly and we're going to get them eating foods and get them in the family meal and move on. Or we have this sense of it's really important for them to take in a certain amount because they need these nutrients. Iron is so important. B vitamins are so important. And now is the time to maximize that. We can get ourselves so worked up and anxious that we start pressuring our baby. And when it comes to any developmental skill, but this seems to be especially true for eating and it's um, this is supported by the research. When we apply pressure, when our babies feel like we are pushing them to do this activity, we're pushing them to eat more than they want. We're pushing them to explore food that they're not interested in. This will almost always backfire on us. Mm. Pressure leads to less eating, not more eating. And I think anybody who's had a toddler can remember times where you're like, just eat your meal. Like, we need to move on. Come on. So it's so common that we do that, that we apply pressure. And it's, you know, when that happens once in a while, that's not a big deal. But when we start to apply pressure, over and over and over again at meals because we're anxious or we're worried that they're that they're not eating enough or that they're not eating the right foods, um, it will backfire on us. So again, this is why introducing real foods to baby at six months when they have this very strong safety net of breast milk and formula. so you know it doesn't matter if they eat one bite or z- you know they eat zero bites versus the whole meal, they're still gonna get their nutrients from the breast milk or their formula. that establishes a pattern of low pressure. And that tends to track beyond that. So we just want to really make sure we're not applying our own fears and anxieties to our child's eating because we want to keep the joy in the eating. We want them to go at their own pace and we want the activity to be self-led and self-motivated.
0: Right. And so so you've mentioned this window a couple of times. What age range are you talking about?
1: There's some very cool research coming out on that, but there appears to be what we call a critical window of development between six months and 12 months with the most strong period being between six months and nine months Mm -hmm. where a baby has all of the foundational skills and the foundational supports they need to learn to chew. And when we are not introducing chewable foods, textured foods in that window, so especially between six and nine months and absolutely before 12 months, um, it becomes more challenging for babies to learn those skills beyond then, You have to work much harder for them to build those skills and there's a much higher chance of picky eating down the road. So um, again, this is supported by the most current research that's coming out that's showing that period is really important. It's not that they could never learn those skills if you don't practice in that phase. So again, if your mama heart, your your parent heart is just like, you know, breaking because you think, oh no, I missed that window. That's not the case, but it is more challenging, which is why, again, we want to really help parents understand there's a critical window. Let's meet it when it's most open. Well, anytime
0: you hear the word as a parent, critical window... That is what yeah. to pay attention to and and I know it's never a closed window. We get that a lot on the sleep side too. Like my baby is yeah. eighteen months and they still wake up four times a night. We've missed it. That we're going to be awake till they're twenty five. Like no, yeah. we can always yeah. correct it. But those critical windows, we definitely want to pay attention to. This was such an amazing conversation. I think we're going to have to have you back on because we (laughs) could explore so many different parts of this, but I know you are busy. So let's jump into our really quick fire round. Are you ready for some questions? Yeah. All right. What are you currently binging on TV?
1: Okay. So I am really boring and don't watch a lot of TV. I tend to work late into the night, but when I, so it's mostly like, these are the last shows that I binged on, but Schitt's Creek was definitely a favorite of mine. (laughs) that I got super into. Um, and then that's on the lighter side and, uh, Peaky Blinders is the other show that I like love that is a guilty pleasure that I totally binged on, but it's been a while since I've actually watched TV. So they're a little, those
0: those are two of my husband's favorites and the same thing. I, he likes to fall asleep to TV and I, if I start watching, I will, I will watch till the very end. So I put my earbuds in and go to sleep. What is the most recent book you've read?
1: Okay. This is a little embarrassing, but my lady book club was trying to get us all like to be a little bit better about reading. And so we decided to choose like a trashy romance novel as our most recent read. And we settled on a book called Dark Fever, which like you could tell from the title is straight up a trashy romance novel, but it's also like a fantasy dark. Trashy romance novel.
0: I love, and somebody gets murdered, and it's the wife next door. I love those. Yeah. They're just that's like I call it vacation read. It's like you're reading Star Magazine or that book.
1: Totally, that's exactly. And I'm embarrassed because I I really love to read. There's lots of great books that I read, but that's that's the one. Yeah, you're
0: like I I, I promise I'm an intellectual. I am. Um, so you're a busy mom with two kids. What's your productivity app that you use for either work or
1: personal? For personal, I use Google Keep for like everything. Okay. It just keeps little like lists essentially. So I have like a million lists of things through Google Keep. And okay. then for work, I use Air, we use Airtable. And that one has been newer to me, but I'm really loving it.
0: Airtable. I haven't heard of that. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Um, okay. And then last one, what's your go-to de stressor?
1: Oh man! So I'm a total extrovert. I de stress with people. I like to be around others. So um, cooking with my friends is one of my favorite things. Like sharing wine and getting the kids playing outside, and then we cook together. Uh, going for walks with friends is a big one, and listening to music. I like to sing like at the top of my lungs, either with friends or just on my own. So those Bye. are my.
0: I think we would get along good. That is fun. Can you, Carrie, share where everybody can find you and Solid Starts and all the great things you just talked about?
1: Primary way to find us is through our website, solidstarts.com. We have so many free resources on our website, lots and lots of free articles. We have our free first foods database, which will always be free. That's on there. So if you want to look up, like I said, you know, can I serve my baby cantaloupe? You're going to find it on there. Um, we also have a really strong, very awesome, very frequently updated Instagram page. So you can find us at solid starts there. We, um, lastly have an app that you can find that is also really helpful. It's um growing into an extremely popular app because it's such a useful thing, but that's just solid starts as the app.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all your awesome knowledge today. Have a wonderful day.
1: Yeah, you as well. Thank you. Bye.